Thank you, Randy, for leading us this morning. I'd like to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus will be in Exodus chapter 7 this morning, Exodus chapter 7, as we continue to make our way through this revelation of God to His people. Last week, we started this narrative of where Pharaoh would be confronted by Moses and Aaron, and we saw this first sign, the sign with Moses and Aaron throwing the stick down before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's response. And the narrative now progresses to what we have affectionately understood to be this first plague narrative. This is the turning of the water of the Nile into what appears to be blood. And here in this text, and in some ways not only just this text, for the narrative of these plague narratives, God is using these to remind us that God works through signs to judge, but not only to judge, but also reveal Himself. This is the primary intended purpose of the totality of this entire narrative, that not only would the Israelites know who Yahweh is, God desired that the pagan Egyptians, including Pharaoh himself, might know exactly who is God. And so we begin this narrative with this revelation of God working through signs as a mean of judgment and a means of revealing himself. We see here in verses 14 through 19 of Exodus chapter 7 that Moses and Aaron are sent by God to confront Pharaoh. Listen at this narrative as it unfolds. Then Yahweh said to Moses... Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. It is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. More than likely, Pharaoh's going out to bathe. Go to him in the morning and stand on the brink of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, that is to Pharaoh, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go. For what purpose? That they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, Pharaoh, you have not obeyed. And thus says Yahweh, by this, you shall know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood, and the fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels 
of stone. Pharaoh's hardened, stubborn heart is no match for Yahweh. Yahweh's will will not be thwarted by Pharaoh's objection to letting the nation of Israel go so that they may serve the Lord, so that God would fulfill his intended purposes and promises to the nation of Israel by bringing them into the land of Canaan, where there they would function as the people of God. And so in this narrative, we already have been given a clue as to what is going to take place. We've already been told in some ways how this narrative is going to flow. And so Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh. But Moses wants us to understand something about this narrative from the very beginning. Moses Moses wants us to understand some important details that help us understand why this narrative unfolds in the way that it does. Look how he begins here in verse 14. Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. Pharaoh's heart is exceedingly stubborn. Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. And what is the implication of Pharaoh having a stubborn heart? What happens in Pharaoh's life as he sets himself in opposition to God? It leads to further disobedience to Yahweh. Look what he says. He refuses to let the people go. Friends, this is how sin always works. This is not only how sin works in the heart and life of of Pharaoh. This is also how sin works in my heart. This is how sin works in your heart. The more we live our lives in rejection to God, the more we live our lives in rebellion against this almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, divine, supreme being, it should be no surprise to us that we find ourselves further removed from him, living in utter rebellion and objection against God. And friends, this is a theological narrative that we see flowing all the way from the beginning of the text of Scripture. When Adam and Eve sin against God in Genesis chapter 3, what do Adam and Eve receive as their just penalty for their sin? death. And guess what happens? They are placed outside of the Garden of Eden, the Bible says, to the east. And track the narrative from the book of Genesis and throughout the Pentateuch. The further removed the nation of Israel is from God, the further the text of Scripture reminds us they move to the east. What is the text reminding us in that narrative? The more they live their lives in rebellion against God, the further removed from God they are. Friend, this morning, you are as close to God 
as you desire to be. What keeps you and me from walking rightly with God and close communion to God is sin and rebellion against God. Whatever is going to happen, and we already know the narrative of the text of Scripture, we've read this narrative before, but whatever is going to happen in this narrative, we can know is going to happen based on these two facts. Pharaoh has a stubborn heart. He has a heart that is set in rebellion against God, and he continues to live his life in objection to God. This is what John would write for us in 1 John. Look with me in 1 John chapter 1. In 1 John chapter 1, John reminds us and has a statement for us about continuing to walk in darkness. This is a message that we heard from the beginning and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we have fellowship with him while we do what? Walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now is John saying that just because we sin one time, we're walking in darkness and we're set in complete objection and rebellion against God? No. The Greek New Testament, that verb, is one that speaks of something that is happening, happening continually. If you continually walk in darkness, if you set your life up every day, at every moment, in rebellion against God, you are walking in darkness, and the text of Scripture says you lie. This is Pharaoh's problem. He continually walks in rebellion against God. He refuses to let the people of God go. And so what does God say? Go to him in the morning. Meet him as he's going for his bath early in the morning. And, and there, as Pharaoh is making his way toward the Nile River, you're going to set yourself up to reveal the word of the Lord to Pharaoh and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you. Just listen to how this narrative unfolds. By the time we get to the end of verse 19, Pharaoh cannot have any excuse that he didn't understand. Pharaoh can't get to the end of the narrative and say, I'm sorry, I didn't really realize on behalf of what God you were coming to me. Look at the clarity of the text of Scripture. God has clearly revealed himself to Pharaoh in such a way that Pharaoh stands without excuse. And friend, if you were here this morning and your life is set in rebellion against God, you will one day stand before God and have no excuse. Why? Because in the same way, with the same clarity, God is revealing himself to you and me today. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that God has clearly communicated his might and his power to us through creation, such that no person 
Even the person who has never heard the sweet name of Christ, even that person stands with no excuse. God clearly reveals himself. I am Yahweh. I'm the God of the Hebrews. And this is my desire for my, my people. I want you to let them go so that they may serve me, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh has a problem. Up until this point in the narrative, Pharaoh has walked in rebellion against God. But notice what God does here in verse 17. God is going to respond to Pharaoh's arrogance that goes all the way back to chapter 5, verse 2. Listen at Pharaoh's arrogance in chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go so that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. You recognize that language of what we just read in chapter 7. This is God's desire for his people. But how does Pharaoh initially respond to God's command? He responds in arrogance. He responds in rebellion. Look at verse 2. <coughs> but Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Pharaoh has never heard that there is a God who reigns supreme above himself. Pharaoh had never been confronted with the truth that he was not the ultimate God. So in chapter 5, he, he responds with that arrogance. What? There's another God greater than me? There's another God to whom I should walk in obedience? I don't think so. Look at Yahweh's response now back in chapter 7, verse 17. How does Yahweh respond? You will absolutely know who I am. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. So whatever is about to take place, the narrative that is about to unfold, and by the way, we're going to see this phrase repeated several times throughout the plague narrative, narratives. Whatever is about to unfold, Yahweh is about to respond in such a way that Pharaoh will absolutely know he is no true God. Pharaoh will absolutely know that he is not the mightiest deity that exists. Pharaoh is about to receive a lesson that's going to over unfold over the course of several months. That even he must live his life in submission to the will of God. By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. This is what God has already said in Exodus chapter 7, verse 5. Hear these words. 
The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. He repeats it again here in chapter 7, verse 17. And then notice again in chapter 9, verse 16. In chapter 9, verse 16, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed where? In all the earth. Look again real quickly in chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have strengthened his heart, I have hardened his heart, and the heart of his servants, that I may show thee signs of mine among them. And not only so that Egypt may know, but verse 2, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. Everything that's unfolding in this text of Scripture, these statements of divine judgment, are for the purpose of Yahweh revealing himself to those who do not believe. So how is God going to do it in the context of this passage? He's going to strike the Nile So we've read this text. The Lord says to Moses and to Aaron, stretch out your hand over over the waters. The Nile was the mighty river. It was understood itself in some ways to be deity. It was a means of, of stability for the entire region. It was a means of sustaining life. It was a means of of economic growth. It was a means of of growth for for all of the crops around the nation of Israel, uh, Egypt. In some ways, Egypt was sustained by the Nile River. Nothing was seen to be as mighty as the Nile. In fact, the Egyptians would understand the Nile from time to time to be angry with Egypt. If, If Pharaoh had done something that the Nile didn't like or the god of the Nile didn't like, then the Nile might dry up. And Egypt understood that to be a sign, a statement of judgment that she had done something wrong. And so this mighty river that Pharaoh and the Egyptians understood to be deity in some way, to be a sign of of power and might, this river is going to show, be shown, the Egyptians are going to be shown that it's not this river that stands in authority and power over them. There is a God who controls the mighty Nile. Stretch out your hand over the Nile. And as you stretch out your hand over the Nile, it's also going to affect all those canals and rivers that run off of the Nile and and the ponds and the pools of water. And in case you're wondering... God says it's even going to be the vessels of water that you've already drawn. So when you went to the Nile and drew some water out and and put it in your pot, even the water in the pot is going to appear as blood, be turned to blood. How will Pharaoh respond to this display of might? Notice what the text does. Verses 20 through 22, the text is going to show for us two narratives. 
one of obedience and one of rebellion. Look at the statement of obedience on behalf of Moses and Aaron. Verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of the servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But, verse 22, the magicians, magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so Pharaoh's heart remained stubborn. Pharaoh's heart remained in opposition, opposition against God. Moses and Aaron are prophets of God, and the text shows us the two responses to Yahweh. One response is the response of Moses and Aaron to walk in obedience, to hear the command of God, to hear what God is saying. In the same way that God speaks to Pharaoh, so does God speak to Moses and Aaron. And the text shows us that Moses and Aaron, unlike Pharaoh, respond favorably in obedience to God. This is what God anticipates and expects of you and me, of all people, that we would rightly hear the plea and the commands of the text of Scripture, and that we would walk in obedience. But just like in Moses' and Aaron's day, so too it is in our day, not everyone who hears the gracious plea of a loving God to repent, to walk faithfully, responds in obedience. And this is exactly what Pharaoh does. Pharaoh rejects the gracious offer of God to respond in obedience. And instead, he responds in disobedience, and guess what happens to the nation of Israel? The nation of Israel receives the judgment of God. Now, friends, as we make our way through these narratives, this first plague, if you will, is mild, exceedingly mild, compared to the rest of the, the plagues that follow. There's only one statement of death in this text of Scripture. What dies in this plague? The fish. Thank you, buddy. The fish die. But the text doesn't indicate that this is in such a massive way that it causes so many problems. In fact, you come to verse 25, depending on how you want to read verse 25, and there's a chance that Pharaoh looked at everything that was going on and for like seven days was completely unmoved by the Nile turning into to red blood and the fish dying. It did cause some discomfort for the, for the Egyptians. They had to get creative to go look for a source of life, water. They had to go digging in shallow graves in order to find the water that had seeped through the sand in order to be sustained. But Pharaoh responds in rebellion against God, and his rebellion not only affects himself, the Bible says it affects the nation of Israel. The fish 
die. But there's a problem for Pharaoh. Pharaoh has his own club. He has his own fanboys. He already has his, his own priest. Pharaoh lives in an echo chamber. He already has a collection of people that tell him what he wants to hear. So he calls this group of people together. Your text and my text translates that as magicians. He calls his, his magicians, his priests, his religious elite to himself and says, look what's been done. And notice what the text of Scripture says. So the magicians of Egypt did the same. But make no mistake about it, friends. The same as we saw last week. These magicians don't do the same as Yahweh because they don't have power over nature. So what do they have to do? Conjure up tricks. The magicians, the text says, they do the same thing by their secret arts. But how does that function in Pharaoh's life? The same people who have been deceiving Pharaoh, the same people who had been propping Pharaoh up to believe that in some measurable way he was a god, these same people continued to function in the same way in the life of Pharaoh, such that the text of Scripture tells us that his heart remained stubborn and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron. He would not listen to the prophets of God. And look what he does. He turns back and pursues those things that continue to bring him comfort. You see what the text of Scripture says? Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. Instead of seeing this sign as an act of judgment, Pharaoh calls himself these magicians. And Pharaoh yet again turns, turns from God and toward himself. He turns from God and toward those things that bring him a sense of comfort. And yet again, this text of Scripture through this image reminds us of what sin does time and time and time and time again in our hearts. Will you pursue the things in your life that bring God glory and honor? Or will you pursue those things in life that bring you pleasure? That bring you earthly satisfaction. But hear the words of Jesus. No person, not you, not me, not Pharaoh, no one person can serve two masters.
for your loved one and hate the other. You know what Pharaoh's problem was, friends? Pharaoh loved himself more than he loved God. Pharaoh loved the mastery of himself more than he loved God. And because of it, the Bible says Pharaoh turned and went into his house and even the Nile, the source of life, stability, economic power being turned upside down didn't phase Pharaoh. But look who it did phase. It did phase all those around him, did it not? The end of this narrative paints a picture for all these people having to go around and try to find water. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. While Pharaoh supposes for a moment that he could avoid the judgment of God. The text of Scripture reminds us that his rebellion affected the Egyptians around them such that they could not live their lives on a daily basis and not be continually reminded of God's judgment. And this narrative reminds us, friends, that in my life and in your life, we cannot sin and it only affect me. Dad, your rebellion against God, your hatred for God, your disdain for your wife, your failure to lead. While things might be going great for you in life, those failures will not escape those around you. Mom, your unwillingness to be disciplined, to point your kids throughout the day regularly toward Christ, your unwillingness to guard your tongue and honor your husband, it might not work bitterness in your heart at this moment. But be assured that you can't do those things on a daily basis and it not affect your children around you. We don't sin in isolation. Our sin will always affect us and those around us. So what does this text remind us? What does this text teach us? God is 
coming in judgment. This was a sign of judgment for the nation of Israel at a very specific time, at a, at a specific moment, under a specific Pharaoh. But this judgment is a sign to you and me that God will. And God is, even at this moment, in ways that we don't always comprehend and understand, God will carry out divine eschatological judgment against those who have positioned themselves in rebellion against him. We read that text of scripture from Revelation chapter 16. But isn't this what Jesus himself was also telling those who were listening from afar in Matthew? Jesus had something to say against those in the Gospel of Matthew who thought that they understood the weather. As one Baptist preacher said, they were weather-wise, but otherwise. They comprehended the earthly, but they missed the eternal. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, Matthew chapter 16, came to test Jesus, and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. You know what Jesus was saying to these Pharisees? The religious elite of the day? You pride yourself in all of your arrogance thinking that you know all of these things, but you're missing that which is most important, eternity. Friends, the greatest thing for you to know in life is not the name of every one of the stars in the galaxy. The greatest thing for you to know in life is not the stats on every NFL player in the league. The greatest thing for you to know in life, friends, is Christ. But notice what Jesus said to the Pharisees in this text. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Pharaoh missed the greatest sign God could give him. The Word of God. And friends, some of you seated here in this building this morning, and some of your neighbors, and some of your family members, and some of your friends are too missing the greatest sign God has ever given us. And that's His Word. The Word incarnate. The Word made flesh, Jesus. God's judgment is coming. Jesus is coming, and that coming of Christ will be two things. Judgment and a complete revelation of Himself. 
Don't be like Pharaoh, friends. Reject the path of Pharaoh. Reject understanding God as judge. And today, understand God as Savior. Would you trust in Christ today? Would you believe in Him today? Would you see that this text points us to this truth that indeed judgment is coming? And would you understand that like Pharaoh, neither you nor I can escape God's sign? Oh, you might miss it for a moment. You might miss it for a few years. You might not understand Jesus now. You might reject him now, but friends, there is coming a day in which you will absolutely understand who God is. And this is the lesson that Pharaoh himself learns, but he learns it the hard way, does he not? For God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. Don't wait until God executes judgment for you to understand who he is today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the revelation of yourself to us through Christ. We thank you that in Christ, you have both revealed yourself and communicate your judgment. So Lord, may we hear the truths of this scripture today. May we see these signs of judgment today. May we see your desire that all people know you. And may we, by faith, respond in obedience. Would you take a few moments where you're seated today and reflect upon this text of Scripture? If you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ and God through his word and by his spirit has convicted you of your need to turn to him, would you turn to Christ now where you're seated? Would you reject the pleasures of this world and turn to Christ who is living water Would you reject yourself as your own God and turn to the one true living God whose desire is that you might have life and have that life more abundantly? In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word by singing. 
as we sing, friend, if you're here and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. Please feel free to come forward and we'll be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. But friend, you don't have to come forward and speak to one of us. Please feel free to turn to someone seated next to you. There are plenty of people seated in this building who would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Maybe you'd like for one of us just to pray with you. That you might be a Moses and Aaron, that you might faithfully walk with God, that you would obey God, that you would be bold in the proclamation of God's word. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him. This would be an opportunity for you to express interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, we ask that our response might be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?